We love stories that end well. The stories that prove most satisfying, most endearing, have endings that resolve matters, but they also elevate the entire story. The ending itself trickles back through the entire story and elevates it. Now, there are, of course, tragedies. Stories that are tragedies, they they don't end the way that we would really like them to end. And there are some stories, they they, kind of drive me crazy, I don't know if you like them, but they just kind of trail off, and they don't end, you don't know where they went, and you wonder, what happened? There's a place for such stories. Lest we grow weary of perfect endings or forget the enigmas that mar a broken world. But the best stories end well. And there is no story that ends better than God's story. What makes that story so glorious is that it is not fantasy, but it is rather history. And unlike any other story, it concludes with that which is yet future. Since God is the sovereign Lord of human history who determines its end, the future is certain. God is no fortune teller guessing at murky possibilities. What is more, God who stands outside of time and sovereignly steers history to the end that He has determined graciously reveals the ending. He does not reveal all that we might like to know, but He reveals enough to assure us that the end is the best part of the story. And that story ends, as we might anticipate in this series, with a city. The book of Revelation actually centers much of its focus on the city of man in its final, worldwide, world-dominating manifestation. If you make your way to chapter 17, we notice this in verse 18, the woman a reference to this city, to the city of man, to the purposes of man. The woman that you saw in the great, is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. This is apocalyptic literature. It's very symbolic. It's very hard to figure out at times, but what, it's pretty clear what is being said here. This woman that is pictured in this symbolic way is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. In chapter 18, as you can probably see as a heading in your uh, translation of Scripture, chapter 18 speaks of the fall of Babylon, the final city of man. We see in 18 in verse 10, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. In Revelation 19, the armies of the world, the offspring of the serpent, mount an assault on Jesus Christ who returns to earth to defeat them. In chapter 19 and verse 11, then I saw heaven open to behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses." 
From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now what we've just read, there are those who take a position that's referred to as amillennialism, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. If you haven't heard that word before, let me just introduce it here, and we'll talk about this position a little bit further. But they would take this passage to be a description of the conquest of the gospel in this day. That's how that passage would be read. But that interpretation I find a bit hard to square with the bloody carnage that is left by Christ's conquest. Notice verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. There's a reason why some see this as a description of the conquest of the gospel, and we respect them, and I respect that position, and some of you probably hold that position. But I I find that difficult to square with this carnage, and that to be a fit-fitting description of the conquest of the gospel. But in this conquest, we do note here and agree that the beast and the false prophet are captured and thrown into the lake of fire, verse 20. There is a false trinity that is developing through the book of Revelation, and that is the serpent aping as the father off the scene, but the influence upon everything that's there, the serpent, Satan. Secondly, the beast is described, aping the son with a deadly wound that is healed. And the third is the false prophet, aping the Holy Spirit by drawing attention and worship to the beast. In chapter 19, the beast and the false prophet are vanquished. Christ destroys them. The question that we naturally ask in understanding the book to this point is what about the serpent? Verse 21, And the rest were slain by the sword, that is the followers of the beast and the false prophet, the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So again, from an amillennial perspective, we'll come to it further. This is the conquest of the gospel, a description of that conquest. The word of God from the mouth of Christ conquering the nations with the gospel. The difficulty of the symbolism is with the birds gorging on their flesh and what that means. We'll not get into how that's interpreted, but... The question that looms as Revelation 19 closes again is what about the serpent? The mastermind behind the city of Babylon. The beast, the false prophet, this one who directs everything. What about the serpent? 
And this brings us back, of course, full circle to where the Bible begins in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, that the serpent's head will be crushed. That account has been taking place and indeed is addressed at the cross, but we come now to the end of the account, to the end of the story, and we see the crushing of Satan's head. The beginning of the, the, beginning of the end starts in chapter 19 with the return of Christ. The next installment comes with that characteristic phrase, then I saw. Then I saw is an indicator of a new vision, of a new topic. So the false prophet and the beast destroyed, their followers destroyed in this conquest of Christ. What we find now is Christ's 1,000-year reign from the city of God. Verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. The bottomless pit, or the abyss, is the place of judgment for fallen angels. The key symbolizes control of the place. If you rent an apartment or you purchase a home, they will give you a key. And when they turn over those keys, everything's done and you now control this space on some level. What does this angel do with that key? Verse 2, And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Until, this is a qualifier, until the thousand years are ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. No deception but at the end of this thousand-year period. Now, let me ask some simple questions, and I'm leading you somewhere, and I admit that as I say, ask these questions. But what does Satan want to do? What does Satan want to do? He wants to deceive the nations. Verse 3. Does the angel weaken Satan's power to deceive the nations, or does he stop that power? The natural reading, I think, is that there is a complete removal of Satan's influence. Why do I say that? He is bound, but not just bound, he is secondly thrown into a pit. That pit is shut and its entry is sealed. These are words piled upon one another saying his influence is stopped. For how long is Satan's influence removed? Until the thousand years are ended. Now let's dip our toe just for a few moments into millennial theology. We're in a series of sermons tracking the theme of the city in Scripture, and it's probably clear to you we're skipping a lot that we could really land on, couldn't we? Chapter 17, chapter 18, the great Babylon. All I've done is mention it, but we do have to end this somewhere, someday on this earth before the millennium comes, and so we're going to work through that. But skipping past that, we... we that's our emphasis here in the city, and I don't want to stray far from that, but we can't really come to the end of the account without dipping into 
millennial theology on some level. Let me say, for some of you, you begin to salivate when we talk about such things. For others of you, you don't, I've never heard this. I don't even know what you're talking about. Just begin to make progress. If, if this is confusing to you, just begin to make some inching progress today, and I don't intend to answer all questions. But I've asked the questions that I've asked to highlight differences that I would have with our brothers and sisters whom we respect who hold an amillennial point of view. I hold and will describe here what is called a premillennial view. That is, Christ comes and establishes his thousand-year reign. Millennium comes from the Latin word meaning 1,000. 1,000 years. It's mentioned six times here in verses 1 through 7, so it's obviously a big deal. The millennium is this 1,000-year period. One who is amillennial in position would say that the 1,000 years is a figurative description of our present age. We are in the millennium. Millennium has been going on since Jesus came in his first advent. So first, in an amillennial perspective, Jesus reigns in heaven for a figurative period of time. Not literally a thousand years, but just a figurative period of time. Secondly, you note the word nations in verse 3. They would take this as a reference to Christians. Satan can no longer deceive the nations. They would see that as a reference to Christians. Thirdly, Satan was imprisoned during Jesus' earthly ministry and he remains imprisoned in the abyss today, unable to deceive God's people. We're equated with the nations. That's in a, in a nutshell the position. The question I would ask, and again, with respect to those who disagree, certainly, but we have to hit these things that's in the text, and we can avoid them and pretend there's no disagreement, or we have to hit them straight up, but was Satan bound at Christ's first coming? This is a question that I'd like to ask in light of some other texts of Scripture. We are instructed by Peter, as you see here on the screen, to be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, writing to churches that were living after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, John writes, the Spirit says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. In Revelation 2.13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. 1 Thessalonians 1.13, we wanted to come to you, but Satan hindered us. These are all statements about believers. Now, there's no question in anybody's mind that Satan is free with access to unbelievers. But these are some indicators that Satan's presence is ongoing, that his capacities to influence believers is real. And so there is some trouble with the suggestion that he is bound in the abyss and sealed there, locked in. 
Another problem with the amillennial view is the word nations. It's never used elsewhere in the Bible as a reference to believers in this age. But that is how it is taken here, that he is no longer able to deceive the nations, verse 3. That's a reference to Christians. The view that I would take takes the nations to be a reference to all the peoples of the earth, which would be the more natural reading of it. And, a, and, and I would also take the binding and the imprisonment of Satan, not as a description of his weakened influence upon believers during this age, but of the total removal of his influence from the earth for 1,000 years that are yet to come. You see the differences between these two views. There is also, let me just say, a post-millennial view, which we're going to ignore at this point. The similarities with amillennialism are significant enough not to highlight three and throw further confusion into the sermon. Uh, but but the, the other is that there's very few that hold that position, and that doesn't make it wrong, but we're not going to look at it today. And I think that most that we would interact with would take this view. And I, as far as I, I'm pretty confident, we have had individuals speak in this church that hold all three positions. So this isn't a matter of going to heaven or not. It's a matter to respect and just to, to work through as Christians where we differ with one another. But back to the text of verse 4, we have noted first of all in verses 1 through 3, Satan is bound and imprisoned, and then in verses 4 through 6, the saints reign with Christ. The saints reign with Christ. Verse 4, when I saw, then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Two groups are mentioned here in verse 4 who are described in previous chapters There are those who died for Christ and those who lived until Christ's return who were faithful through the reign of the beast. However they died, whether through martyrdom or in other ways, those who died in Christ are raised to life at this time and they assume positions of power under Christ's kingdom rule. So though they were counted unworthy to live in man's court, they were deemed worthy to exercise authority in Christ's court. Now again, an amillennial perspective would say that Revelation 20 refers only to the church age in which we now live. Therefore, they came to life cannot mean resurrection. From an amillennial perspective, they came to life refers to they trusted Christ as their Savior. They were born again. They were made alive again by trusting the gospel. So it is a figurative reference to believers. This interpretation is necessitated by other assumptions, but it runs into trouble in verse 5, where we read, They came to life, reigned with Christ a thousand years. Verse 5, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead are a group in contrast with those who are resurrected from the dead at Christ's return and who reign with Him for a thousand years. 
That contrast seems fairly clear to all. The rest, I believe, to be unbelievers. An amillennial view would say that the rest includes all people, even believers, who are here physically raised from the dead. There's some who take it in a spiritual sense, but generally it's taken as a physical resurrection. So the first who come to life are those who trust the gospel from an amillennial perspective. And then the rest are all people who are risen physically at this time. It seems more natural to me to take verse 5, the rest of the dead, to be those who, are, who did not come to life in physical resurrection in verse 4. So believers are resurrected at the start of the millennial reign of Christ. Unbelievers are resurrected at the end of the millennium. To take both of these as physical resurrections, I think, is a a simpler reading of the text. Now verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. The first resurrection links to those who came to life in verse 4. Let me say this. They came to life. That phrase or something very similar is found over 40 times in the New Testament. Only once does it have a figurative meaning. It's very clear in that passage that it's a figurative meaning. So we should assume that it has its normal meaning, which means to rise from the dead, to be resurrected. And here, we would take it that way unless the context dictates otherwise. A millennialist would say the context of the book dictates otherwise. The millennium is happening now. And therefore, that it has to be taken. They came to life must not be a physical resurrection because we don't have believers being physically resurrected today in mass. Those resurrected from the dead at the start of the thousand years are clearly set apart by God's blessing upon them. And again, I think the natural interpretation is to take them as distinctive from those who are also raised from the dead at the end of the millennium. Verse 6. Over these who are raised in the first resurrection, verse 4, the second death has no power, which seems to imply that it does have power over those who are part of the second resurrection. And this, admittedly, is some of the confusion. But the second death has no power over those that came to life in the first resurrection, seeming to imply that it does have power over those who are part of the second resurrection, after the millennium. So those resurrected at the start of the millennium will reign with Christ for a thousand years over the earth and from Jerusalem, we find later in the text. Now it's interesting here to me as well that at the end of verse 6 you see they will reign with him for a thousand years. Do you notice the phrase, they will reign? That is a future tense. 
The amillennial position is troubled here that it is not a present tense. They are reigning with him, which is what an amillennialist would say. We are reigning with Christ now. But rather than saying that they are reigning with Christ now, it says that they will reign with Christ, future tense. From an amillennial perspective, you would just that's not important, that it's a future tense, it's, it's just not an important thing. I would say that it is important, but deep breath. Let's get out of this mess and muck that we're in. And by the way, I present these ideas again because I know there's some here who hold uh, this view perhaps, and also to say that we don't want to just come across as uh, in, in a proud sense that we've got the answers and everyone else who disagrees has no point. I want to be honorable to say there is a debate here among good Bible-believing people. And so we want to respect that and work through it and be open to consider these ideas. But pulling out of that discussion, let's not lose sight of the beauty of this story. If it is true that this millennial kingdom is yet to come then it is a place where many of the prophecies of the Old Testament are fulfilled. And I believe for the reasons that I've argued here, I've done so mostly negatively, but I believe for these positive reasons, as we look at this, that there will be a thousand-year reign of Christ with His resurrected saints. And this will be a time of utter beauty. You look at our twisted, fallen world, And you just ask, what could this be without the curse? What could this be without the outward expression of sin at every opportunity? Could you imagine? Have you ever thought this? I don't know, maybe I'm weird, but I just think, what would the world be like if everybody lived like I do? I hope that's a positive thought for you. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it, it's, it's not a high bar to clear, believe me. But, but I, I hope that you just, what if everybody lived like I do? What would this world be like? Well, there's a day coming, the millennial age of beauty. It will be a golden age on this earth where Christ rules with the rod of iron. And that means that he will control what is said publicly. He will define the public debate of all of the nations. He will remove the physical curse upon the earth. And this time will be a time of immense beauty and prosperity. Zechariah speaks of it at its start when he says, On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. There's a reason for that. But on that day living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. You can't put these two, you can't divide these two. He's king from Jerusalem with these geographical changes, these topographical changes that allow this living water to flow in two directions, which it couldn't possibly do today. Isaiah says, the word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days 
that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples shall come and say, come, let's go up to the mountain Let's go up to the mountain of the Lord. To the house of the God of Jacob. That they may teach us His ways and that they may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not rise, that should be, should not lift up, there it is, lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The beauty of it is just stunning. And there are nations here that are described that could kill one another. But they do come to Jerusalem. They do come to the ruling Christ there. And there is peace. We could go on and on about even the physical changes that take place in, um, among the animal realm, that take place in uh, the fertility of the earth and the like. Time hinders us here. But it will be a golden era. We come to a second major section then of Revelation 20, and that is describing the serpent's final assault on the city of God, beginning at verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, so that time we have to read in from the Old Testament ends, and at that time, as was indicated at the end of verse 3, Satan will be released from his prison. If Jesus' earthly ministry secured the binding of Satan, the amillennialist position, why release him? There's really no answer for that. And let me just stop here and one more moment in the muck of the debate. This would be just a brief summary of, I think, what are some substantial issues to consider the significant hurdles to an amillennial interpretation of Revelation 20. These are the things you've got to hold to to hold the amillennialist position. First, Satan is in prison today in the abyss and unable to deceive the nations, and the nations are believers. That's what you would have to hold to. I, again, there's nuances in people turn and adjust here and there, but this is basically the, this, the mainstream thought. Secondly, a millennial position, the first resurrection is spiritual. Those who come to life, it's referred to this way only in this place in the entire Bible, is referring to the new birth. Thirdly, you would have to hold that the future tense will reign in verse 6 is insignificant. Also, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 2, speaking of our future judging of the nations, is referred to in the future tense. Why not in the present? If we're reigning today with Christ, why not use the present tense? And fourth, Satan is released even though his bondage was secured by Christ's earthly ministry. That's the position. It was secured there. But again, I think there's, there's reasons that lead to these interpretations which are challenging, I think. 
uh, to hold. But it's, it's other ideas, other concepts from outside the text that impose upon such interpreters these kinds of conclusions. Now again, I want to stress there's many faithful brothers and sisters who hold these interpretations and we respect them. But I must conclude that it is the theological system that forces some of these unnatural interpretations of Revelation 20. But back to the point at hand, the the amillennialists cannot answer why Satan would be released when, in their way of thinking, he was bound at at Christ's first mission. But if, on the other hand, Satan is bound for a thousand years and Christ and his saints reign in Jerusalem during that time, Satan's release serves serves a very vital purpose. The millennial kingdom is what? It is an ideal environment. It is a back-to-Eden experience. But Satan's release at the end of that thousand-year period proves just how depraved the human heart is. We see this all the time in our culture, don't we? It will be fixed if we just throw more money at it. If we just do this social program and give this amount of money to solve this problem, it'll be taken care of. If we can create the ideal environment, people will live better. The millennial reign of Christ is a clear and final display of the fact that that's not the case. It's not the environment that controls the heart. It's not the external environment, it's the internal environment. That's what's wrong. It's the heart. Now, the external environment can certainly be a part of the problem and does need to get fixed. But it's the heart that's the issue. You are in a perfect environment for a thousand years, ruled by Christ, the curse removed, Satan in the pit, and unable to deceive the nations. Those nations flowing to Jerusalem to learn the word of the Lord there. Christ setting the agenda for what people think and see and policies that are established. A thousand years of that let Satan out of his pit for one short season and he's got a following. That's who we are. That's what the human heart is and that is displayed here in this passage. During the 1,000 year period, children will be born who are not genuine believers. They must be converted like anyone else. Susceptible suddenly to Satan's deception, they follow him and they turn against Christ. It is, in a sense, the fall of Eden all over again, but this time on a massive scale. Not just Adam and Eve disobeying about that fruit, but the nations of the world turning against Christ and his people. Under Satan's influence, it's a full-out assault on the throne city of Christ's kingdom, Jerusalem. And this sets the story up to deal finally and decisively with the serpent and with his offspring. Verse 8. So Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. So the deception of the nations, again, read naturally, is not 
nations isn't believers in verse 3, but nations is nations, and they listen to the voice of Satan, and they come against Christ. From the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. That's not Grog and Eggnog, all right? That's Gog and Magog. Gog was an ancient king, referred to in Ezekiel 38 and 39, came from the land of Magog to attack God's people, but it's used figuratively here because it's from the four corners of the earth. It's just a phrase that was commonly used figuratively of the enemies of God. So the enemies of Christ will descend upon Jerusalem following the influence of Satan. We see verse 9 that they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. What is the beloved city? There's only one answer that's possible here and we're getting to it as we get to chapter 21. Here is just the beloved city. But they will come and surround this city, the armies of man encircling Jerusalem, seeking to bring down Christ just as Satan sought to bring God down in the very earliest stages of creation. They seek to conquer it for the glory of man and their own selfish ends. Babylon the Great has fallen, but now they want to revive Babylon again, and that can only happen as they crush Messiah and his kingdom. So they surround the beloved city, verse 9, but God responds, and fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The last rebellion is crushed. As God did with Sodom so long ago, He rains down fire, consumes the offspring of Satan for the last time on earth. And then Genesis 3.15 comes to its final chapter, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The serpent's head was crushed at Christ's death and resurrection. But here the last installment of that conquest is instituted as Satan is consigned to eternal torment. As a sinner, as a mere mortal, I could wish that the story ended here. But that's not reality. Before this story hits its most glorious ending, it gets really dark. The demise of Satan is followed by the demise of the offspring of the serpent. All who reject the saving grace of Jesus Christ and fail to worship Him as Lord. We come to that at verse 11. Christ's final judgment on the offspring of the serpent. Then I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. After the thousand-year reign of Christ, after the judgment of Satan, Christ sits in judgment upon all lost souls. Verse 5, all unregenerate souls are resurrected, body and spirit reunited, and they're brought before Christ, seated on an imposing throne that bespeaks authority and absolute holiness. Earth and sky flee from His presence. It may be a reflection of 2 Peter chapter 3 and the purifying fire that will lead to the new earth and the new heavens. At any rate, verse 12, 
I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. What's this death and Hades giving up, and the the, the dead are being given up? This is connecting back to that resurrection after the millennial reign. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Verse 13, verses 12 and 13, all of those so dead, not dead in Christ, but dead in their sin, are now resurrected, body and soul reunited to stand before Christ as judge. I think there's other texts of Scripture that would indicate this is Christ on the throne. Verse 14. I should mention here, this great white throne, John 5.22, 2 Corinthians 5.10. This is where we would see Christ on this throne. And I, I, I should also pause to say that If you do not know Christ as your Savior, this moment in time right here, you are receiving grace from God. You're receiving the gracious invitation from God's Holy Spirit to face this coming reality. This isn't easy stuff. This is harsh in many ways to our ears. But this is a grace. There is a great great white throne And you don't want to be with those who are resurrected after the millennium to stand before this throne. It's an opportunity being extended to you now to turn from your sin and repentance, to throw yourself on the mercy of Christ. Don't dismiss this warning. The great, the weak, the strong, those who are forgotten, all resurrected, to stand before this throne. Verse 14, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. The second death connected to the second resurrection. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's consider verse 14, the second death, linking back to verse 6. And those who are part of that second resurrection. Then verse 15 No one resurrected to stand here at the end of the millennium will be found in that book. If their name is not found written in the book of life, they'll be thrown into the lake of fire. There are two books. One book in which our sinful deeds are written, or those who stand here. It may be a figurative book, it may not, that's really not consequential to us, but whatever the case, we can stand before the throne of God to answer for our sins, which are many and far more than we know. An accounting before the throne of a God who knows all things. There's that book. There is another book, and that's filled not with our sins, but that records our names. That book is not a listing of good people who have impressed God with their works. That book records the names of sinners to whom Christ has given new life. 
It's all of grace. Sinners that He rescued as He enables them to put their faith in His death to pay the punishment due their sins and in His resurrection for their justification. Not a book with these works that have earned Christ's favor, but a book with my name. Grace. Is your name written in the book of life? This is one reason on a practical level why we labor in the membership process of this church. Those conversations that we use to investigate whether or not our names are written in the book of life is a time of rejoicing, it's a time of assurance, it's a time of such great significance because we're seeking to discern this. Is your name written in the book of life? And the testimonies of faith as people join our church and identify with Christ in baptism are a declaration of the same. We're not God and there are certainly people that are self-deceived and we as a church cannot perceive everything. All of that understood. There is a rejoicing in this assembly as people identify in membership and as they identify with Christ in baptism, a celebration. This one's name is in the book. It's all of grace. And we just celebrate it. Is your name in the book of life? Oh, this is indeed the best ending of all stories. Now, Revelation 20 is filled with a lot of pain that precludes the end or precedes the end. But much glory is to come in the millennial reign of Christ and much headache as Satan's offspring rebel and are judged. There's much sorrow here. But now, at this judgment seat, the way is cleared. For the establishment of the eternal city, the new Jerusalem on the new earth. It ends with a city. And this will be the very best of all endings because the dwelling place of God will be with His people forever from this city. Let's give Him thanks. We realize, Father, that we scratch at the surface of deep glories. We are very aware that you are fully aware of our errors in understanding these events and their relationship. We can't all be right. There are interpretations of Scripture that are right and some hold them, and there's interpretations that are not right, and some hold them, and not one of us on these matters can be dogmatic. We realize that this is just all a part of our humanity, a reminder to us that we don't know everything, and that we have to continue to respect and work with one another through disagreements in this world. The Lord, with that caution, we look to these future days with great hope, and we look all of us as your people who are Bible believers, despite our interpretive differences, we look to all of this with rejoicing and gladness to know that you know it all. You know the end from the beginning. You know what you're doing. You know what you're going to bring about. While we look 
to what the millennium is, it is in any event the reign of Christ, crucified, risen, and returning again. It is the Christ who will judge the living and the dead. It is the Christ who is our salvation and our hope. It is the Christ, your Messiah, the one sent to crush Satan's head, who gives us the privilege to have our names written in the book of life. In this we rejoice and give thanks. And for that warning that comes to those who are headed to a Christless eternity that are among us today, I pray that there would be a turning and a recognition that they are being warned about reality. The only story that is complete in the future is this story. Because you alone know the future and you have chosen to reveal it to us. May that reality come to impress itself upon our hearts and upon the heart of anyone who is seeking to enter eternity or, knowing it or not, is headed there to stand in their own authority on the basis of their own self-righteous works which will look so useless at the great white throne. Lord, turn that focus. Turn that directive and draw to Christ as Savior those who do not know you. We pause here before glories that we can hardly describe and hardly bring to understanding. But I pray that you would move in and through us and through your word to accomplish your purposes and to sanctify and deepen us as your people as we look to the new Jerusalem. Through Christ we pray.